the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, on Way of Grace with Pastor Jessica Stan. The work of the Spirit of God is to take Him, who is the most lovely things in the eyes of the Father and in the eyes of the Spirit of God, and make Him lovely to you, in you, and through you. Today on Way of Grace, we continue our view of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He humbled himself, part 2. Last time we were together, we took a look at the fact that Jesus laid aside his glory or his reputation and took on the form of a servant. Well, today we want to continue looking at that aspect of this humiliation of Christ and the fact that he was also discovered and manifested to be a, a real man and why that is significant. Here's Pastor Jessica Stan with today's broadcast of Way of Grace. If you will, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, plop your Bibles down as we take a second observation of what uh, we learned last week was a psalm that the apostle introduces to this beloved church concerning the character and nature of Christ as a servant and as a son who humbled himself in a manner by which the believer not only is saved, but has a model for all eternity to follow. When you think about verses 6 through 8, what is called the Carmen Christi? The question comes to mind, or at least the observation, is that we will never find a comparable disparity among ourselves when we think about what Christ did for us. I don't have to put it this way. You and I might be in a precarious situation enough that we would find ourselves having to serve somebody. A precarious situation. And we might look upon that person that we are called to serve, and we might think that they are beneath us, or lower than us, or not worthy of our love and service and sacrifice. Certainly that can happen to you I mean, it's a delusion, but we can think that. And you might be able to imagine a kind of person or a people group for whom if God had called you to minister to, let's say, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, India, the, some of the most poor people in the world, uh, diseased, let's say a leper colony, if you will. God calls you to that leper colony. And you, you have to serve them uh, intentionally with with sincerity and integrity and, and commitment and sacrifice. And you might feel like, you know, this is just too much. Not me, Lord. The comparison between you and a leper colony to which you might be called or I might be called doesn't even remotely compare to where Jesus Christ came from. 
and his call to serve us. You and I are worse than a leper colony. And the distinction and disparity between the superlative glory of the infinite God and the person of Christ from that place of perfection, which indeed was a great sacrifice. Just imagine he had to leave the ineffable bliss that unmolested dimension of eternality with the Father and the Holy Ghost where their fellowship was perfect, perfect, not a flaw in it, not a conflict in it, not a struggle in it. Everything you and I have is a struggle. Not an error in it. He came from a place of total and perfect felicity. Y'all know what that word means? Complete unity and love and fellowship and, and bonding and harmony and oneness. That is a great sacrifice. To come down here where we are, a bunch of worms. Would you agree? We are a bunch of worms. I, that's why we need to stop comparing ourselves. What kind of distinction can you really make from one worm to another? Help me. And yet, do you see the vanity in our hearts? And our subject has been reaching back to Moses and comparing Moses to Christ and how that God said of Moses at that time, he was the what? Meekest man in all the earth. And Christ owned that title for himself. I am meek and lowly and you will find rest to your soul. You will find that I am meek and lowly in heart. And that is an amazing admission on the part of our Savior who himself upholds the whole universe right now by the power of his word. When you enter into fellowship with the Son of God, you find him to be meek and lowly. Has that not been the case if you're a child of God? Meek and lowly. And yet you and I have been called to that same kind of integrity, humility, and meekness. In fact, when we think about the comparison or disparity, the incomparable disparity between Christ and his people for whom he died and served, humility is an absolute must. Humility is an absolute must. Like for the people of God, the idea of not being humble is tantamount to the idea of not being saved. It's tantamount to the idea of not knowing God. It's tantamount to the idea of being separated from him of whom we have more, heard more than once. I, the high and lofty God that sits on the circuits of the universe, dwell with him who is of a broken and a contrite heart. Specifically to revive that heart and bring him into communion with me. It only follows then, doesn't it, that if you and I are not pursuing the grace of God to employ that process of humility by which we can begin to be meek, we have to admit we're not Christian. It is this reason. Now, I want to press it home to you. I know you're a child of God. I know you believe in grace. I know you're saved by faith. All that. Got it. But it's really important for you and I to comprehend what Paul is doing in the Philippian case because the Philippians who we had learned last week were one of the most faithful congregations that Paul had who started with his ministry, who was with Paul when he was in prison. They didn't abandon him on his low notes. And he thanked them for that. You were with me from the beginning. But he had heard rumblings in the church. No, not in the church. Rumblings in the church 
of people starting to argue and bicker and enter into conflict. And that's the premise of chapter two, wherein Paul makes an appeal. I told you last week, the structure of chapter two is clear. Ten instructions with one grand illustration that motivates an initiation on our part to follow our master. Ten instructions. That's the way verse one of chapter two opens. Follow with me as we milk our way into our message for today. Now, we will come back here next week because we are dealing with at least four categories of what we call the Carmen Christi, and that is the divine reputation of Christ, which we dealt with last week. Today, I want to deal with that in part and then move on to the divine humiliation of Christ, which we also got into a bit last week, and we'll close today with the divine propitiation of Christ. Reputation, humiliation, propitiation. And that is the heart of our salvation the proprietary work of the one who was humiliated having voluntarily set aside his reputation. That is where we will end today, and I'm praying the Spirit of God would blow it up in your heart and show you how much God loved us and what Christ did to redeem us who are his. The way the apostle opens up, he says, if there be therefore any consolation in Jesus Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels of mercy, will you notice that there is a conditional clause running all through that sentence? Do you guys notice that? Do you know what it's called? If. All right. So in Greek grammar, that basically means if and since. What Paul is doing is questioning, not with doubt, but as an encouragement, if in fact you are a child of God and since you are, These things should be true in your life. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if there be any consolation in Christ. Now, you may not know what that means, particularly if you struggle with sports, because none of us like consolation prizes in sports. Not not if you believe you got some skill sets, right? You get a consolation prize. That's a nice way of saying you ain't all that good. (laughs) But the word consolation here is a bad translation, in my opinion, It wasn't back then. It's difficult now because language morphed in its meaning. Consolation can have a very superficial idea today. The word back then meant encouragement. It's literally our Greek term paraklesis, which means to come alongside and to build up and to encourage. Now, what does it mean to be encouraged? It means to be given courage on the inside. If Christ is one who encourages you, now does the gospel encourage you? Does the grace of God encourage you? Is God a God worthy of being uh, encouraged in? Didn't God encourage Joshua when he said, be of good courage, be strong, right? God calls us to internal courage, which is encouragement. And don't you feel good when you're weak and then you look up and God has buoyed you up, buoyed your soul up, buoyed your mind up. And when we hear the word of God expounded and Christ preached and Christ exalted, my soul is encouraged. I don't know about you. You are good all the time, all the time. You are good. Just amazed at people who can say they know the Lord and don't find encouragement in him. So what Paul says is, if Christ has come near to you in the presence of the Spirit and has taught you and encouraged you and grounded you and strengthened you in the reality of your salvation, you are no longer in danger of hell. Yeah. 
You are no longer in danger of the wrath of God. You are no longer in danger of eternal rejection. You are safe and secure in the arms of God Almighty, in the arms of Christ, and by the power of the Holy Ghost. Eternal security is yours in Christ. To me, that's great encouragement. That's great encouragement. He says, if there be any encouragement of Christ, any comfort of love. See that? He moves now to another blessing that comes with the presence of the Spirit of God. Do you know what that is? Love. We would argue that if a man is loveless, a man is godless. Would we argue that? Would that be a valid argument? God is what? He's love. And the Spirit of God has poured into our hearts, according to Romans 5, the love of God, has it not? Now, here's what Paul means by this, as we, as we understand these 10 instructions. He means that Christ comes along in the exposition of his gospel through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. And that, that gospel pours into your heart a love for God because of his love in Christ. Has that happened to you? We love him. What? Because he first loved us. But do you love him? Because if you love him, it will be evidenced by faith. See, because faith only works by what? Somebody tell me now. It only works by love. Where there is no love, there is no what? Where there is no love, there is no what? And therefore, when we talk about loving God, it is axiomatic that you're going to see faith in my life. Because God has poured into my heart the spirit of God by which I love him. And faith is going to be the expression of that love. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. So the people of God walk in faith in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, towards Christ, because the spirit of God is pouring into our hearts the love of God. It's firing up a love for God. It's firing up a vital faith in Christ. And love producing faith is going to result for us in a kind of manifestation of the fellowship of the spirit of God that is going to serve as a witness. Notice this next line. He says, if there be any comfort of love and if any fellowship of the what? There it is. So beautiful, worthy of unpacking. But those of us who are in Christ are only in Christ because of a fellowship with the third person. It's the third person who reveals Christ to you. He reveals Christ in you. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. He's bringing you into fellowship with the father and the son. That's the work of the third person. Communion and fellowship with the Spirit of God. In fact, after we deal with this series, my next series is in honor of the third person. It's going to be about seven messages on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, his job is singular and solitary, and don't miss it. The job of the Holy Ghost is not to teach you how to clown in church. The job of the Holy Ghost is to vicar Christ in such a way that when he's done with you, you look just like him. That's the job of the Holy Ghost. Did y'all hear what I just stated? The work of the Spirit of God is to take him who is the most lovely things in the eyes of the Father and in the eyes of the Spirit of God and make him lovely to you, in you, and through you. I need that, don't you? I need the Spirit of God to chisel me and shape me and mold me and transform me and inform me and impact me so men and women can love the same Savior that I do. But he's got to help me. So if there's any encouragement, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, and finally, any bowels of mercy... It's just a long time to develop that. But what Paul in the first century church understood was 
Compassion has to be a critical component in the life of everyone for whom God has shown compassion. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? And the whole business of salvation is about mercy. So now here's what Paul does. He says in verse two, these words, upon these conditions, what he says is, fulfill ye my what? That's an imperative. That's a commandment. It's in the imperative form. What that means is it's a command for the church at Philippi to engage Paul at the level that when he hears about them, they can rejoice. He can rejoice. As John puts it in 2 John chapter 1, I rejoice in knowing that my children are walking in the truth. See, a good father delights when his children are doing what's right. Paul says, fulfill ye my joy, fulfill ye my joy, one imperative, that you be what? That's the second instruction, that you be like-minded, that you think the same way, not think in a kind of a monotone or a kind of robot fashion, but think in terms of harmony, think in terms of unity based upon a priority of purpose. When people are walking in unity, they are operating out of a priority of purpose. Does that follow? When we are of the same mind, we have a grid, we have a prism, we have a context, we have a, a purpose statement, a mission statement that we operate out of. The child of God operates out of a mission statement called the Word of God, where you and I are properly handling the Word of God and properly understanding it as our instruction manual, we're going to be on the same page. Now, this is not talking about thinking in nuanced categories the same way. We are so different are we not? I've said it for years that a good 40, 50 percent of y'all, if I saw y'all on the street back in the day, you would cross the street. When you saw me coming, we would have nothing in common. But here's what God does in his mercy. He takes people who have absolutely nothing in common and brings them under the banner of Christ and gives them the same mind. This is the miracle of a local church where the gospel has sovereign sway in the heart. When a person comes in, they will find no logical reason why all these people need to be under this pastor. No logical reason whatsoever. There is no ontological. There is no sociological. There's no historical compatibility with most of us. But grace brings us under the banner of Christ and the word of God becomes the standard upon which we begin to think God's thoughts after him. I like this next imperative, having being of like mind, having the same love, having the same love here. I want to drive home the point of having the same love, meaning that we are focused on Christ. We are Christ centered people. This has been a axiom for us for 23 years. Let me make it really simple. All churches have problems. They all have challenges. But you want to find a church where the problems are minimal? Find a church where everybody's looking up at Jesus instead of at one another. When you find a church where everybody's looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, then you're going to find a church where the only thing that's really happening is we're kind of bumping into each other because we got our head up. But where churches are stuck on the horizontal and tripping on their space and caught up in not having their room or their time to shine, it's all bad. Divisions abound, contentions abound, strife abounds, all the things that Paul is warning against. Do you want to find unity? 
Find unity in the one who's seated on the throne. Look your head up, tilt your head up and overcome the world by looking to Jesus. You will have a better life where the majority of your time you are thinking about loving and engaging the Lord Jesus Christ and letting all the other stuff fall by the wayside. Does that make sense? This is where we are in the instructional side of his his, uh, imperatives. Here's another one. Having the same love and being of what? One accord. Let me tell you quickly what that means. I love this. It is a strand of cords that are bound together. It's not one string. Help us overcome that, Lord. The evil of hyper autonomy, the evil of solo individualism has nothing to do with the word accord. Accord is when you take two or more and bind them together, as we often do in the marriage ceremony. A threefold cord is not easily what? We talk about the man and the woman and them being united to God in Christ and how that they're bound together in Christ. That cord cannot be easily what? And when it says here that we are to operate in one accord, what it means is that we should have the same kind of Christ identity. That Christ should be your identity. That Christ should be my identity. I'm not going to waste time talking about other identities, which are prevalent in politics, prevalent in, in, in schools and all of that to cause you to be distracted from what God has called you to do. May I say this to the degree that you are comfortable putting a hyphen on Christian. I know you don't know your Bibles. To the degree that you say, I am a black Christian or a white Christian or a male Christian or a female Christian or a gay Christian or a lesbian Christian or a bi Christian, you don't know Jesus. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Hyphens will get you in trouble. You won't find one hyphen in the Bible. And they were first called Christians at Antioch. Either you are a believer or you're not. And if you are a believer, you are coming up out of all that old mess into one unified person, so making peace. God help you. God help you. I should go to Medlin right here, but I won't. It amazes me how people will get married and keep the old name. See, I'm Medlin now. I'm Medlin. I am Medlin. Am I Medlin? Well, I'm kind of married to you, but for this cause shall a man leave his mother and his father. Cleave unto his wife and the twain become one flesh. That's what Christ did for you when he jumped out of heaven and came down to hell. He came to get you lock, stock and barrow and he didn't put any conditions on that clause. He came to get you and all your ugly. He bought it all past, present and future. All your wickedness, all your vileness, all your sinfulness and said, I buy her. I purchase her with my blood. I want her. She's mine. I own all her shame, all her guilt, all her rebellion, all her sin, all her evil, all her wickedness. I want all her bad reputation. I can fix all that. I'm enough man to know how to fix her toe-upness. I know that's a bad word, but that's what it means to be saved by the grace of God. I know I'm messing with you, but I have to. Because some of us are on the danger of being lost, thinking we're saved. 
The apostle says, be of one accord and then of one mind. It seems like he's repeating of one mind, but I want to make a distinction here with the mind here in the latter end of the verse and the like-mindedness. I want to make a small distinction. One is having to do with how you think. The other one has to do with your passions, with your drives, with your intent. Like, you don't start thinking. You are feeling and you are emoting that produces thought that serve as a premise for your volition. Studying God's Word that we might show ourselves approved, that we might come to a deeper love and understanding of God's amazing love for us in Jesus Christ. This has been Way of Grace with Pastor Jessica Stand from Grace Bible Church here in Hayward. We are always delighted and grateful that you take a few moments to spend with us, that we might, again, study to show ourselves approved. And as we leave you today, we would also leave you with an invitation to join us for worship in person. If you enjoy the teaching ministry of Pastor Jessica Stand and Grace Bible Church of Hayward, please consider this a formal invitation to spend Sundays with us. 11 a.m. is the worship service, 10 a.m. if you would like to join us for Sunday school. And don't forget, Friday evenings at 8 p.m., we have enjoyed a marvelous time of studying God's Word with brothers and sisters in Christ from a variety of churches all over the Bay Area. That's at 8 p.m. Friday evenings. For directions and more information, simply stop by our website, grace-bible.com. That's grace-bible.com. Or give us a call, 510-886-9782. That's 510-886-9782. If you're looking for a copy of today's program, you can either contact us by phone or mail. Send $5 and we'll get a CD out to you. Or stop by grace-bible.com and download the audio file for free. The address, if you're writing to us, is 22768 Main Street, Hayward, California. 94541 is our zip code. And one final note as we conclude our time together today. We're able to come to you daily here on KFAX because of friendships and partnerships with people such as you who see the value of this ministry. Now, while it is free to listen to, for us, there is a cost, and we are a listener-supported ministry. No matter the size of your gift, it's greatly appreciated. So would you take a moment and pray about it and then contact us with your gift today? 510-886-9782 is our phone number, or write to us, 22768 Main Street, Hayward, California, 94541. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Until next time, God bless. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.